Oh, okay. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. For the past few weeks, we've been thinking about barriers to scientific innovation with the help of the graduate student group PROSPER. PROSPER promotes science policy, education, and research. And through their seminar series, Where's My Jetpack? For a while now, they've been thinking about the many reasons why innovation can take so long. For this week's episode, graduate student Shalina Ramnarine interviewed Barack Cohen, professor of computational biology and a PI, or principal investigator, here at Washington University in St. Louis. Ramnarine and Cohen have been working together for years, and she has come to deeply respect him as a person as well as a scientist. So when she had questions about how the scientific lifestyle, everything from long hours to low pay to competition over funding to a lack of diversity in the scientific community, how all of these things can affect innovation, she turned to Dr. Cohen. So my name is Shalina Ramnarine. I'm a fifth-year PhD student in human and statistical genetics on the Med Campus. And when thinking about barriers to innovation, I really thought about what barriers are created by the increasingly competitive research lifestyle. So I wanted to talk to my thesis chair, uh, Barack Cohen. Dr. Barack Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to be with you, Shalina. Uh, <laughs> And um, happy to happy to be here. Yeah, I bet you're wondering what you've gotten yourself into, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. So I wanted to ask you kind of how you thought the academic lifestyle has changed when you were a graduate student to now being a PI. Uh, the world has become more connected with the increased use of the internet. You're more um, required to be up on current research, maybe as a while ago when the internet wasn't used as much. So how has things changed for you? Well, I guess in terms of um, the internet, for sure, that's changed dramatically. When I was in graduate school, uh, the internet was was there, and it was a tool, but not, not ubiquitously present like it is now. We had something called the Gopher server, which was uh, slow, and you could get weather maps and a few other things, but not much. And so I suppose a, a major trend is that, uh, of course, everyone needs access to a computer almost all day long. And, there's, and um, so you're constantly aware of what is, going on, um, what is going on outside the lab. So I suppose in terms of, of innovation and, and competitiveness, it is, it is true that we are much more aware of what is going on outside the lab, who are quote-unquote competitors are and what they're doing. There's always been internal pressure to produce, uh, but I, I think there is probably a little bit more external pressure given that you're aware of where not just the leaders in the field are, but you're sort of aware of where everyone in the field is. So I, I think that is, that is a big difference. Do you see it as a barrier or sort of now that you're aware of what other researchers are doing, it gives you maybe more opportunity to build on their work? Well, I think that it doesn't have to be a barrier, but it often it often is. I think that, you know, if we all know what each other are doing, then there's the opportunity to um, cooperate, collaborate, and um, spread resources in the best way that so that we don't duplicate effort. However, um, I think often it's used in the opposite way that, let's say, m- 
motivation or pressure to finish first. So if you know what other people are out there are doing, then sometimes the pressure is not necessarily to collaborate with them or to cooperate with them. It's to, it's to finish before them. Some of that depends on the, the field that you're in and the personalities involved. And always the, you know, the funding situation is something that's always hanging over all of these decisions. So um, it can be a force for good, but I think it often inflames competition. So I was really interested when I first became a grad student in the scientific lifestyle, right? So this expectation that you have to publish, you have to write grants, because that's part of being able to move up. But what comes with that? So what comes with that is often 12-hour days. Um, A lot of people don't tend to take a lot of vacation because they tend to be really stressed about finishing XYZ project. How do you perceive that as a PI and what are your expectations for your students in lab and the other also the other students that you supervise I will spare you the the stories about the long hours that I worked when <laughs> I was a graduate student because I know that that that's that's boring um, so my really only expectation for the graduate students is that they be curious they be fearless and that they work hard I think those are the three ingredients that make for successful graduate students. And I think that um, wrestling truth from Mother Nature is a a difficult business. And at some level, it's going to take hard work. There are going to be times where you have to buckle down, put your nose to the grindstone, and, and get things done. I think that the culture has switched too much towards the emphasis on hard work and away, and there's not enough emphasis on curiosity and not enough emphasis on fearlessness. So if you're genuinely curious, if you're working on something that you are genuinely interested in, then you'll be waking up at night thinking about it. You'll be waking up in the morning thinking about it. You'll be excited to come to the lab. You'll be excited to do it. And the hard work sort of just naturally follows If the PhD is really just a means to an end, it's really just sort of a stepping stone to a place you want to be, but you're not necessarily interested in what you're doing right now, then I think that the hard work can seem like much more of a labor, can seem much more of as a much more of a chore. And so I think that there's a fraction of graduate students who sort of view graduate school as uh, an accumulation of data an accumulation of, of, of tangible uh, results, papers, and, and stuff. And then I, then I do think it probably is no longer a labor of love. It's probably, uh, it becomes a grind. And so I think that hard work was, is always going to be a part of getting a PhD, regardless of which uh, discipline you're in. I think um, that it will be tempered so long as you're genuinely curious and genuinely interested in it. Hard work will never be a substitute for, for curiosity. That was a really interesting response. There are a lot of like phrases in there that I, that I really like. So hard work is never a substitute for curiosity. So I was curious about your response when you were saying that if you're genuinely curious um, and interested in getting a PhD, this is what you do. And so it made me think about 
What about individuals that want to get a PhD, that want to sort of go through the process of training your mind, but don't necessarily have the type of curiosity for science where it's what they eat, breathe, or live, right? So now we live in an economy that, you know, really requires money for you to be able to do a lot of things. And after you get a PhD, the financial payout is not always there. So, you know, the salary for a postdoc is around, what, 45000 And so that is sort of like something that only certain individuals would be able to afford to be in this lifestyle financially. Um, and so I'm wondering, do you think that creates a barrier to innovation in the sense that maybe a PhD is only attractive to certain individuals who can conceive the idea of studying something for the passion of it while not making a lot of money? Um, I, I certainly hope that's not true. Uh, one, of my, one of my scientific heroes is uh, Thomas Henry Huxley, who lived around during the Victorian age in England, and he was really responsible for sort of firmly creating the discipline of biology, taking um, the pursuit of scientific knowledge out of the hands of the aristocracy, of the wealthy, of the people who could afford not to have a job and do science sort of in their living rooms, and, and created what we really know as the modern profession of biology. And I do still believe... Uh, although I, this worldview is sort of under attack now, I do still believe that uh, science is a meritocracy. And so I think that people from all backgrounds and all walks of life and all strata of life can become professional scientists, professional biologists in particular. And I think that the monetary awards are not large, but I think that I, I think you can live a middle class lifestyle pretty easily being a professional scientist, whether you are a professor or, uh, or you're in industry or you're um, an analyst or a, a programmer. I, I don't think that a middle-class lifestyle and life as a professional scientist are mutually exclusive. That said, I do think that um, we, being the community of academics who, who train PhDs, need to be much, much more upfront in the beginning about what the, a professional trajectory looks like. So I try to tell the students, I tell them right in the beginning that uh, if you're doing this to get rich, you're going to be disappointed. If you're doing this to get famous, you're going to be doubly disappointed. The reason to do a PhD in science or in biology in particular is because you're fascinated by biology. You're fascinated by life and how life works. I just you know, for me personally, the academic lifestyle is attractive because it's just you spend so much of your time uh, or supposed to be spending so much of your time thinking and writing and about what it is that most interests you. Interesting. So kind of made me think a little bit about um, the funding climate and how that's really influencing the fact that there are too many PhDs and too many postdocs and not enough of them are going to be able to get tenure. So if I was an individual that came into science, came into PhD, because I, I love it, as you say, I'm genuinely curious about life and I do everything that's expected of me. So I go to graduate school, I get good papers. I go to a postdoc, I get good papers but I'm still unable to get a tenure-track position. Do you think that the, the climate that has been created by Congress has sort of set up a bottleneck for 
truly innovative individuals because they're unable to get tenure track positions. And how do you think the transition of those individuals from academia to industry, because that's probably the place that's going to be most open to taking them, is going to create a barrier to academic science, but yet moving industry science forward? Okay, another very meaty question. I think, first of all, we have to figure out what we mean by there are too many PhDs. One of the premises of this question is that there are too many PhDs. Mm-hmm. So we have to sort of try to understand what are we what are we talking about? And I think very often too many PhDs is a very narrowly defined. It means that there are too many people in the pipeline and not enough tenure track academic jobs. So I think that in the community of scientists and in, in at, at the NIH and other funding agencies are really trying hard to redefine what a successful scientific career is. I think for too long, a successful scientific career was very narrowly defined as a tenure track job and, and at a research institution, you know, doing high powered research. And I think that we are broadening that definition of what it means to be successful, recognizing that not everybody wants to be a tenure track professor, that there are many ways to express your creative impulses in science without being an academic. There are interesting mm. positions in industry. There are being created in academics much more uh, interest in these research track professors, positions uh, where that are essentially postdocs, but they're paid better, and you know they get to focus more of their time on actual research, less on administration. So that's attractive to some people. So I think that that those sorts of things are good. Um, the second part of the question was uh, what Congress has done, and I, I wouldn't actually necessarily blame Congress. I think you know, there was a doubling of the NIH budget back in the 90s, and so that was, a, we all thought, a good thing. The response from the universities was to go on this massive hiring spree. Mm. And so, uh, and, and currently, you know, if we were to double the budget again, which is being pr- proposed right now by Newt Gingrich, among others, that the universities would probably again go on a big hiring spree and eat up all the resources and we'd be back where we were. So we really need to figure out a a much more sustainable model. And part of that, again, is getting away from this idea that the only successful uh, track is the academic tenure track. That said, the funding is is difficult. The The funding is difficult. And, you know, if we're talking about innovation... That almost certainly is the main barrier to innovation. As the resources dwindle, as there are more people competing for the same resources, uh, the competition gets more intense, and the funding agencies tend to become more conservative. They don't want to take the risks of spreading the money out. They'd rather give it to people that they know are going to produce, and the science becomes overall safer. You tend to see more groups doing the same sorts of research, whatever happens to be hot at that moment. I think the one thing that, in my opinion, that we can really blame the NIH for is this shift away from investigator-initiated proposals towards what are called RFAs or requests for applications. That's where, uh, so an investigator-initiated proposal would be, I come up with an idea that I think is really interesting and I submit it and they say yes or no, as opposed to a request for an application, whereas the the program officers and the people at the NIH decide this is what's 
what we want to fund, and they put out a request for applications in that narrow area. That's obviously going to generate lots of proposals and lots of science aiming at one toward you know one narrow area. And so that's, uh, in my opinion, certainly a, a block to to innovation. So that was really interesting. It made me wonder if you're at certain schools that have an established reputation, you're probably more likely to get that NIH funding versus if you were a new investigator at maybe a school that doesn't have as strong of an academic um, standing. So is that another barrier to innovation? Maybe we would have you know, new advances if we allowed individuals from other institutions that don't have the same historic background. I think there's an element of truth to that. Name brand schools tend to get the lion's share of the of the grant money, of the funding, and they do also tend to have, you know, quote unquote, the most productive researchers. As if the money is concentrated there, then output tends to be concentrated there. I think the issue is whether that maximizes progress, or in this case, whether that maximizes innovation. Probably it doesn't. I'm a firm believer that we should be relying on what I would call the collective brain. The, mm. the reason that diversity, broadly defined, is so important in science is because you never know where the next great idea is going to come from. So the m more different kinds of people you have thinking about a problem, the better off you're going to be. And I would distinguish that from saying the more people, right? So a doubling of the budget might bring in a lot more people. But if we bring in the same sorts of people at the same sorts of institutions, then you get sucked into groupthink and you're not necessarily maximizing innovation. So in a sense, you would like the funding. You still want it based on merit. You don't want to spread the money around just for the sake of spreading it around. But we should recognize that the more different kinds of people we have thinking about these problems, the more likely we are to come up with creative solutions. That means people from different types of institutions. That means people from different economic strata. That means diff people from different ethnic backgrounds, people from different social backgrounds. You just want a diversity of, you want a diversity of viewpoints. And it's a selfish thing. I don't think we have to couch this in terms of, I mean, even though it's a good, it's good for our society to become more diverse, I would say, if we want to maximize innovation and maximize progress, it's in our own best interest to get the largest diversity of people into the field. I think we really have to redefine merit because certainly individuals that attend certain institutions, they would have had certain opportunities to get there. And so they'll have certain accolades behind them. Whereas an individual that attends, you know, a, a lesser known school may be equally as qualified, but haven't had the same opportunities to attain the same accolades. So if you try to judge them against each other, it may be fear to consider them equal, but it's probably not just because you're not considering opportunities that allow them to get X, Y, or Z accolade. And that's something that I don't think science has figured out a way to incorporate in its uh, comparison criteria. I think there's probably an element of truth to that also. I think if I just rephrase the question, what we're, what we're really asking here is under the current system we had for, for admitting students into our PhD program, are we confident that we are, in fact, selecting the best students, the ones, and by best we mean the ones who are going to 
drive the field forward, who are going to be innovative, who are going to be creative, who are going to be the risk takers? Are we maximizing? Are we maximizing for that? And I don't really, don't really have a great answer. I mean, we, you know, at Washington University, we're a, a top university. We get way more applications than we can possibly admit, and there has to be some culling. And whether or not we are culling. Uh, on the right criteria, you know, is is up for debate. We probably, you know, probably needs to re to review how we how we do those things. But I agree that you know, figuring out the best way to identify those potential students that are going to be most innovative is a very difficult proposition. Sometimes, you know, you don't really know what kind of a scientist a person is going to be until they're actually here in the lab mm -hmm. doing it. One thing that I've learned, you know, just in terms of, of diversity, is that you cannot, <laughs> you cannot tell easily uh, just by looking at a person. So you, you, know, you will get what you would consider very straight-laced, boring-looking people who might be the most creative, innovative thinkers around. And you can get very, you know, science will also tend to attract very flamboyant uh, personalities and people who, you know, dress funny and they could be the most boring you know straight thinkers around you can't you can't tell until they're in the mix until they're in the cauldron you know back and forth with the ideas can you defend an argument you know what are you what do you do you have something interesting to say and you you really can't tell who those people are until they're until they're here so i think you know it's an it's an argument again for not uh, not really prejudging based on somebody's background or even their GRE scores or anything like that, you know, we're often surprised by who turn out to be the, the stars in the class. Hmm. Well, it was really great chatting with you about all of these barriers to innovation in the scientific environment. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Many thanks to Barack Cohen and Shalina Ramnarine for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, including more from our Where's My Jetpack series, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also subscribe to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, and SoundCloud, or keep up with the latest on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.